God, if you have not been with us in recent weeks, actually for over a year now, if you haven't been with us for over a year now, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark together as a local church on Sunday mornings, passage by passage, verse by verse. For the past couple of months, we've been studying through what's known as Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life, just getting a glimpse of the last few days that the Savior is on the planet. Well, today we've made our way to Mark chapter 14, and we're going from the last week of Jesus' life, and we're zoning in at this point in Mark's Gospel, and now we're at the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus Christ. We were then 24 hours of the Savior giving His life for us on His bloody cross. So we got a lot to cover today in an hour. So let's pray together. Pray with me. Father, we come to You this morning in the name of Jesus. And we confess to You, Lord, that we believe Your Word, God. We believe that Your Word is powerful. We believe Your church, Lord. We believe that Your Word is sufficient. We believe, Lord, that it does what it's supposed to do in our lives, Lord, that it shapes us, God, like a sword. Lord, it comforts us, God. It gives us light, God. It's bread to our souls. It feeds us and gives us nourishment. And so we ask now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that You would make Your Word effective in Your church. God, would You come meet with us today? In this passage, would You help us, Lord, as a local church, to linger over Your Word, God, and to see riches and to see glory in You, Lord Jesus. And we just ask for Your help. God, we can't do this apart from You, Lord. I ask for Your help, God, to teach Your Word. And we all ask for Your help, Lord, Your Holy Spirit's help to hear Your Word rightly. And God, I just want to ask You that in the next moment, God, that You would drive out the work of Satan from this church, from our midst, the seed snatcher, the one who snatches the seed of Your Word, God, the one who blinds us to the glory of Christ. And we pray, God, that You would drive Him from this place and that You would thwart His work in our midst, God, and that Your Word would go forth in our lives with power, Lord. God, we pray against the works of the flesh, God, in these next moments. And we confess our sinfulness to You, God, that we have a stubbornness in us, Lord, that refuses to be comforted by Your Word, refuses to respond to Your Word. And we just ask for Your help, Lord. Help us to behold Your glory today, Lord Jesus. God, help, it, help us to gather today for profit, for edification. And help this next hour, Lord, not to fall in vain, Lord. Come glorify Yourself in Your church. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Alright, we got to move today. we got to move because we got a lot to cover. So I want you to turn to Mark chapter 14. And we're about to read our text today. And we're going from verse 12 to verse 26. And I want you to read this with me. Mark 14, verse 12 to verse 26. I want to give you a warning. These will be the most important words you hear in the next hour. These are the words of the living God. Straight from God, without error. No words of man here. This is the words of God. And we're going to read them together. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. This is the Word of God. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as He had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, He came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is the one, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they also drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Alright, this is the passage. This is what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. This is the final night of Jesus' life. For the purpose of our study, I want to split this in half just to help us look at it, to help us study it this morning. So I want to organize this under two headings. And the first is this. First heading is the last Jewish Passover. And you see this in verses 12 through 17. And then a great transition is going to happen in this passage. And you get the second heading. And that second heading is going to be the first Lord's Supper. And you'll see this in verses 18 through verse 26. And I'll call your attention to one more thing. You'll notice across the top of your study guide that I have a title of the sermon today. And the title is, The Lamb Died Instead of Us. The Lamb Died Instead of Us. And by the time we finish today, I hope that every person in the room is clear why you have that title across the top of your page. So let's dive right in with this first heading, The Last Jewish Passover. This is the last Jewish Passover. Verse 12 says this, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Okay, for several months, you've been hearing this over and over since we launched out in Mark chapter 11 into the Passion Week. And you've been hearing us say that this is the final week of Jesus' life and, and He's in Jerusalem and it's Passover time. It's Passover week. And you've been hearing us say that over and over, okay? Passover week is Passion Week. All four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them call attention to this fact. This is a very important detail in the Gospels. And this is a glimpse of the sovereignty of God. I want you to think about this. Out of the thousands of years of human existence, okay, the the Christ of God could have laid down His life in thousands of days in the history of the world. But the way that this happens is that God sovereignly orchestrates history in such a way that the death of the Christ would correspond exactly with Passover. The day that the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. God needs to be praised for things like this. That He bends history in such a way to accomplish His purpose. We need to praise God for this. Passover... This is the last week of Jesus' life, and it's also a key to understanding why He died. Okay, We need to know that Jesus died, but we also need to know why He died. The Gospel accounts give us the history. They give us the facts, the details. They take us through the narrative of the story. But there's little shadows and breadcrumbs buried in the Gospels that give us the significance, the why. What does the death of Jesus mean? And so we need to understand both of these. The historical story of the death of Christ and His final day on planet earth. And we also need to understand the theological significance. What does this death mean? Okay, And if you understand Passover, if you understand Passover, you understand the meaning of the death of Jesus. It's a key. Because it's a key, we're going to spend some time this morning unpacking the Passover. You've been hearing us talk about it over and over again. I'm going to spend some time this morning unpacking it. Okay, It is really hard to overstate how important that this feast was to the Jews. First century Jews. It's hard to overstate this. Okay, This was basically a look back and a celebration to the most important event in the nation of Israel. It was like their 4th of July. Okay? It was the day that they came out of Egyptian bondage where they celebrated their independence from Egypt and their freedom from slavery. It was the day where they walked out of slavery and they became God's holy nation on the planet. This is, this is very important to first century Jews. In fact, Exodus 12.2, you just mark this down. Exodus 12.2 tells us that the Passover was so important 
to the Jews that it reset the calendar. They changed the way that they counted time after the Passover. And so when God leads His people out of bondage, He tells us in Exodus 12 too, that this month of the Passover, this is the new year. This is now the first month. It reoriented their entire calendar. So I want you to see this. This is a heavy event in the Word of God. If you want to know about the story of the Passover, we, we go straight to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, records this story for us. And so here it is. Here's a summary of the story of Passover and the message of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus begins by announcing to us that the people of God for several hundred years, several generations of the people of God were in Egyptian slavery. They were under a ruthless king named Pharaoh in Egyptian slavery. And then the book of Exodus, very early in the book, very shortly, we have a picture of God sovereignly determined. He hears the cries of His people. And then God determines that He's going to come down and He's about to deliver His people and He's going to strike the king of Egypt with a massive blow, a judgment. And so the book of Exodus, it records, God unleashes seven judgments on Egypt, on the king of Egypt. Now these nine judgments, now these nine judgments, they only fall on the Egyptians. Okay, This is the massive blow that God was striking to the king that held his people in bondage. But then, the books of Exodus tells us that God determined to send a tenth and final plague. And the difference in this one than the first nine was the first nine only fell on the Egyptians, but this one was fallen on the whole land of Egypt. Every firstborn was about to die. God announced that God the righteous judge was about to visit the earth, and He was going to judge sinners and He was going to kill all the firstborn. And that this judgment was going to fall on the whole land. I'm going to read this to you in a second, but I want to remind you, God did this to show His people that they had a bigger problem than Pharaoh. The biggest problem of sinners is not Satan. It is not that they are under slavery or they lack purpose in their life. Numero uno problem in sinners' lives is they face the wrath of the righteous judge. And God wanted to show His people that. And He determined to visit the earth in a night of terrible judgment and death. I want to read this to you. Exodus 12.12 God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and, de- and beast. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This is the Word of God. He promised to do it. And then, in the midst of this awful, terrible night, God announces in the midst of judgment that there would be a way of escape for His people. And God makes this provision of a lamb for salvation from judgment. Listen to these words in Exodus 12, verse 3. 12, 12, 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Verses 7 and 8. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the story of Exodus. And I want to tell you that God kept His promise that night. And He came down to Egypt and He unleashed righteous wrath. Listen to Exodus 12, verse 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. There was not a house where someone was dead not dead. This is a picture of the justice of God. The righteous wrath of God. There was a dead body in every single house. Either a dead lamb or a dead sinner. This is the promise of God. But God also kept His promise that night about the lamb. And this is the grace 
and the mercy of God. God's wrath passed over every single house that had the blood of the Lamb spread across the door. That's why it's called Passover. That God saw the blood and He passed over that house in judgment. This is what, this is what we find Israel celebrating in Mark chapter 14. This holy moment where God the righteous judge provided the Lamb and passed over in judgment of His people. So I want you to try to picture this. Not one house that had a lamb experienced death. They walked out that night, the people of God, and there were dead bodies literally everywhere. They were burying, they were crying out for their dead. And God's people walk out in the midst of death and they're alive and they're free. Because why? Because they sought shelter under the blood of the lamb. This is Passover. Alright? This is so important in Israel. This is so important to God. So important to instruct His people in what He's about to do that God commanded His people to remember this event once every single year. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 16 verse 1. He says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Every year you keep this feast. Every year you remember what God has done. This is the law of God. This is a command from God that He wanted to drive this in to the minds, to the hearts of His people. Remember the Passover. Later in Deuteronomy 16, God commanded specifically that this Passover, you cannot keep this in any town you want to. This is what He says. You have to keep this one in Jerusalem. You go to the place where I place my name, and there you keep the Passover. Do not sacrifice the Passover in your own city. And we just see more and more of this, that God is drawing His people's attention to what He is about to do in Jesus. This is the Passover. For about 1,500 years, from the Exodus story to the story of Jesus where we're at right now, about 1,500 year gap there. And for about 1,500 years, faithful Jews, year by year, had gone to Jerusalem, purchased a lamb, slaughtered it, threw the blood of this lamb on the altar of God, roasted this lamb in the fire, sat around in small groups with their family, consumed this lamb, and praised the God of the Passover. And ask God to do it again. Deliver us again, Lord. For 1,500 years this had happened. Try to picture one lamb for every household. 1,500 years of Passovers. I want you to try to picture the amount of blood, the amount of lambs that were slain in the remembrance. And all this is pointing to one sacrifice. One Passover. And this is the one we're about to read about. 1,500 years this had been happening. All pointing to the final, the last Jewish Passover. And we know, we know that Jesus was zealous to keep this Passover that we're about to read about in Mark 14. I want to read you a verse in Luke 22. Luke 22, 15. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So here we are. In Mark chapter 14, on the very day, on the very day when the Passover lamb is to be sacrificed, and we see this picture of Jesus, Jesus is ready to keep this feast. He wants to keep this feast. He is zealous to keep this feast with His disciples. And we know these disciples, they're zealous Jews, they know the Word of God. This is the most sacred feast in Israel, and they want to keep this Passover with Jesus. There's no way that they're about to miss this feast and celebrating this feast. And so they make these preparations for the Passover. Listen to verses 13 through 15. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. Alright. First century culture. You have to know this or this won't make sense. First century culture, men didn't carry water pots. 
Okay, only women carried water pots. This was designated as their work. So, the, so when they go out and Jesus said, you're going to see a man carrying a water pot, that's going to be a unique sign, something that's going to trigger their attention. When you see that, ask that man where the upper room is. Okay, In the middle of Jerusalem, it's absolutely packed with people keeping the Passover. Remember I told you that, that God's Word commanded that the only place that it was lawful to sacrifice the Passover was Jerusalem. So you have almost... Normal population, maybe 2 million. You have maybe even up to 10 million people slammed in this city. Picture tent camping everywhere. People slammed everywhere. Sides of the roads, and they walk out in this public place. And Jesus said, when you see the man carrying the jar of water, ask that man, and he's going to take you to the upper room where this Passover is to be prepared. Now, I believe, this reminds me of that story of Jesus and the donkey back in Verse uh, chapter 11, where he gives them these instructions. And I think the thing that we're supposed to take away from these stories is that Jesus has supernatural knowledge. Okay, We just get little glimpses of this. It's not the point of the passage, but we see this here, that he has supernatural knowledge. Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. He has a divine nature. And in his divine nature, he knows all things before they ever happen. And so here we see Him. and In His divinity, Jesus is in control of every single detail in the entire universe. Hebrews 1.3 says He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's the Christ that we love. Verse 16 and 17 says this, And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as He had told them, and they prepared the Passover when it was evening. And He came with the twelve. Alright, so the meal has been prepared and we're about to get into this thing. And I want to set some structure up to help us to understand what's about to happen in this passage. So historically, these meals today, they're called Seder meals. Most of you have heard of that before. The Passover Seder meal. And they lasted several hours from about sunset to about midnight. So this was a night packed with a meal to God. And there was ritual mixed in the midst of this meal. The meal consisted of unleavened bread and wine and bitter herbs and a roasted Passover lamb. But laced in the middle of them keeping this feast, there was ritual or liturgy. There was times of instruction, times of prayer, times of singing, times of fellowship all around what God was doing. God had done and what they hoped God would do again. So the centerpiece of the meal, no surprise here, the centerpiece of the meal was the Passover lamb. And they were to consume this lamb before midnight, being very careful as they ate it not to break a bone, because a bone of this lamb could not be broken. And we'll find out more about that later. So the centerpiece is the lamb, but I want to show you this. The celebration was split in four phases. And these four phases, they all revolved around four cups of wine that they would share and they would drink in these four common cups of wine as they moved through this meal. And these four cups of wine corresponded to four promises that God had made to His people in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. So I want to give these to you. The first cup of wine was called the cup of deliverance. And it symbolized the first promise of God. And this promise was this, I will bring you out cup of deliverance. The second cup was the cup of freedom. And it symbolized the second promise of God. I will deliver you. That's the cup of freedom. Third cup was the cup of redemption. And it symbolized the third promise of God. This is the promise. I will redeem you. Cup of redemption. Fourth cup was the cup of consummation. And it symbolized the fourth promise of God. I will take you to be my people. That was the cup of consummation. So as they moved through these cups and they shared in these cups, they shared in these promises. They freshly partook of these promises from God. So the Passover meal, they would move through these four phases as they drank these four cups together. Common cups. And here's the way this went down. The meal would be led by the head of the family. In our story, that's Jesus. Okay? The head of the family would stand forward and he would pronounce a blessing over the meal and over those gathered to celebrate the Passover. And then everyone was sharing the first cup of wine. Right? After this, they brought all that food in that we just talked about. Unleavened bread, bitter herbs, Passover lamb. 
and, and, and the second cup of wine. And then the youngest person there asked this question. Why do we eat this, these foods on this night? That was their job. And the oldest person, the head of the family, he answered the youngest person's question by recounting and telling the Exodus story. Here's why we eat these foods. The unleavened bread stands for the bread of affliction. These bitter herbs stand for bitter slavery in Egypt. This Passover lamb is to remember what our God has done for us and He has delivered us. And so this, was, this, this teaching, the interpretation of the meal was very important. Okay? This was more than just eating a meal together. The meal pointed towards the Exodus story. So the head of the family would go through the Exodus story and then everyone would praise God by singing what's called the Hallel Psalms. Okay, we're going to talk more about this later, but that's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And at this point in the Passover, after the first cup of wine, they would sing the first two. Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. And then everyone would share in the second cup of wine. Okay, this is how they move through these meals. Now I believe at some point prior to drinking the second cup, Jesus announced the traitor in the midst of the Passover. You'll see this in verses 18 through 21. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus announces this traitor with an Amen. Truly I say to you. Okay? And this is a prophecy in every sense of the word. He prophesied that someone was about to do something. Okay? And He announced even further, He gave us further details, that the, that the betrayer was going to be one of the twelve. That would be one of the twelve closest companions of Jesus in this world. That one of His closest companions was going to betray Him. Alright? Now, I, can, I, cannot, I cannot understand this. this. This floors me. Okay? And this shows you how deceitful that Judas really was. We know that the betrayer was Judas. Jesus did not name him in the story. And here's what I mean. Sometimes we can think about Judas as so blatantly hip, hypocrite, so blatantly sinful that Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And everybody there is like, of course, it's Judas. Okay? But we see what happens in this story. When, Judas when Jesus announced the traitor, 11 men who had basically lived with Judas for multiple years at this point, they didn't even know who Jesus was talking about. And so this makes him one of the most cunning hypocrites in the history of man. For years he had faked it. For years he had faked it. He said whatever they said. He preached whatever they preached. He prayed when they prayed. He sang when they sang. He was like a little parrot running around. Everything they did, he did. Even to the very end. It says that all of them said, Is it I? So Judas along with the eleven said that same words, Is it I, Jesus? And so you see him as a pretender and to the very last, and to the very end. And with these words, especially towards the end of verse 21, Jesus is giving Judas a heavy, heavy warning. And He's basically saying this, I see you, Judas. I know what you are planning to do. And if you follow through with this, a terrible judgment awaits you. Eternal punishment in hell. This is why it would be better for Judas not to ever be born because if he follows through, he will be punished in hell forever for what he's done. And think about this. That warning came from Jesus, the Son of God. And Judas is so hardened in sin that even a direct warning straight from the mouth of the Son of God does not change his mind. He's given himself over to sin. And he's hardened by sin. And he's deceived by sin. And this is a huge warning for us about apostasy toward Christ. Okay? About hardness to Jesus. About the deceitfulness of sin. Ryan talked a lot last week about Judas. 
Okay, and I would, I would send you back to that, to that message. And I want to turn a corner today, okay, because there's a way that we can be unhelpfully too hard on Judas in this story. And here's what I mean. All right, I want to focus in on these words one more time. These words, one of you will betray me. And I want to slow down for a second, and I want, I want you to ask this question. Learn how to ask the Word of God questions. Why did Jesus say that? Why did He leave it ambiguous? Why did, he, why did He not say, Judas is about to betray me? If He would have said that, then all the other eleven who were standing there would have known exactly who He was talking about. But why did He leave it open? Why is there vagueness here? And I want to submit to you that the answer that I think, okay, to answer that question, I think that Jesus is intentionally intentionally drawing His disciples to search their own hearts about their own sinfulness. I think that that's the intent of His question. Okay, There's a way that we can say, oh, Judas is the sinner. He's the betrayer. He's the wicked one. Jesus wanted them to show Him something different. Jesus knows that there is a sin nature in every one of His disciples. And Jesus wants you and me to know today that you have a sin nature. There is a part of you that nothing good dwells. It it can't even keep the law of God. It's hostile to the law of God. This is called the flesh, the sinful nature. And every one of you have this. Okay, The remnants of it. Jesus has dealt a mortal blow to the sin nature for the believer, but we have something called remaining sin. We have a betrayer in us. And Jesus wants us to know this. We are all capable of betraying Jesus. Do you believe that about yourself? And what He wanted to do by asking this question, if you honestly evaluated yourself, every single one of us ought to be able to say these words to Jesus if we were unthinkably honest. Is it I, Lord? Am I the betrayer, Lord Jesus? And if you think high thoughts of yourself and low thoughts of remaining sin, you will never confess that about yourself. But Jesus wants to draw all of His disciples into this question. Is it I? Is it I, Lord? Am I the betrayer? Every one of us ought to utter that phrase. Is it I, Lord Jesus? In fact, think about this. The Gospel of Mark is about to tell us very shortly that those 11, all 11 of them, are about to abandon Jesus in His moment of weakness. They're about to leave Him. He wants to draw them into a recognition of their own sinfulness. Okay, Every single one of us is guilty of betrayal towards Christ, of being a traitor towards Jesus. This is just the picture of just the foundational gospel truth of the universal sinfulness of man. Man is universally sinful. This includes you. We have all betrayed Jesus. We have all committed treason against the King. Therefore, we all need a slaughtered lamb. And this is intentional by Jesus. In the next verses, He is about to focus in all their attention on His death. But before He does that, He wants to focus in all the attention on why He needs to die. Because man is sinful. Man needs forgiveness. And think about this. Isn't it interesting that in the Lord's Supper, when we remember this bloody death of Jesus, that there's this commandment sandwiched in, that we are to to remember it in such a way of examining our lives and freshly reminding ourselves that we need that Lamb. We need that atoning death because we are sinful people. And this is what you see Jesus doing here. He first draws attention to the reason for His death, And then He is about to draw attention directly to His death. This is the picture we see in this passage. Verse 21 tells us that the Son of Man goes as it is written. And that means that what's about to happen has been announced before in the Word of God. Prophesied in the Old Testament. That's just a simple reminder for us that this is not an accident. Okay? Jesus is not in the middle of these situations seeing what, what Judas is about to do and calling an audible at the line, if you want a football analogy. He's not doing that. He's 25,000 steps ahead of humanity. 
Okay? He, he sovereignly ordains all things. This is as it is written. He's in sovereign control of history. So Jesus draws His disciples into a vivid remembrance of their own sinfulness. And I just want to warn you about something. There is a way to be theoretically sinful. And I just warn you about that. You need to stay 10,000 feet away from that. Theoretically sinful. Oh, we've all sinned. We've all messed up. That is not what Jesus wants you to remember when you think about the bloody death of Christ. You are not a theoretical sinner. You are an actual practicing sinner. You need not theoretical atonement. You need a real Christ to die for your sins. You need to feel this in your bones. Own your sinfulness. At this point in the meal, John's Gospel tells us that Judas gets up. It actually tells us that Satan himself enters Judas. And that he gets up and goes straight to the religious leaders to betray Christ. And then, Jesus and the twelve sit down. That meal was sitting there. And the interpretation of the meal was given. And now they begin to sit down and actually eat this Passover meal. Listen to verses 22 through 24. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So this phase of the meal would have started the the head of the family, Jesus in our story. He would have broke bread and passed it out to everyone there. Okay, And then they would have ate the bread and then ate the whole meal. And then they would finish up this section. They would have drank the third cup of wine, which was the cup of redemption. And so at this point in the Passover... When Jesus is passing out this bread, the bread of affliction, He throws a massive curveball to His disciples. okay, And to everyone there. And He wants to show us something. This is the last Passover. He passes out the bread of affliction and He says these words, That bread of affliction, this is My body. This is My body. And as they're drinking that third cup, the cup of redemption, Jesus announces, This cup is My blood. This cup is my blood. My body, my blood. With those words, Jesus pronounced the end of the Passover and the beginning of the Lord's Supper. I want you to see that. I'll say it again. With those words, my body, my blood, Jesus announced the end of the Passover and the beginning of the Lord's Supper. This is the transition. Okay, The shadow is giving way to the reality. The Passover pointed to the Christ. Now the Christ is here. And He inaugurates an entirely new feast right on top of the Jewish Passover. And He calls it the Lord's Supper. So they look forward to the Christ. Now we, as we partake of this meal, as Jesus has commanded us, we look back to the Christ. The One who said, this is my body, this is my blood. I want you to notice something. The centerpiece of this meal was the Passover lamb. And I was floored by this. Okay? Mark doesn't even mention anything about the lamb in his account. The centerpiece of the meal isn't even mentioned. And I believe that this is intentional. Okay, That's astounding, first of all, but I believe that this is intentional. That the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, He wants all the attention to be drawn in on Jesus Christ Himself. Every person in the room needs to get this. Okay, Jesus just turned a day, the most sacred feast in Israel, a day of remembering Yahweh, and He just turned it into a day of remembering Himself. He did that. That's like a bridegroom, I mean a best man at a wedding, standing up and giving a speech to the the groom and talking about himself instead of the, the groom at the wedding. That's out of place unless Jesus is Yahweh. Unless Jesus is Yahweh, and that's exactly what the Scriptures announce Him to be, that He is the Son of God in the flesh. And this day of celebrating God's deliverance is now a day of celebrating Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This is my body. This is my blood. Those words, we're we're on an interstate, 100 miles an hour to the core of Christianity with those words. 
takes us to the very meat of, of the gospel of Jesus. My body and my blood. And he said that about the Passover feast. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 7. The Word of God is in no way vague about this. This is abundantly clear. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus Himself is the once for all sacrifice forever. All those lambs, thousands of years, are just a shadow, just a shadow, 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 just pointing to Him, one after another. And then this Christ takes all of our sins on Himself and bears our sins in His body on the tree, and He becomes Christ, our Passover lamb that has been sacrificed. This is why John... The Baptist looks at Jesus in John 1.29 and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the true Passover. That's the whole point of this story. Jesus is the true Passover Lamb. And this is the point of the Lord's Supper. You need to know this. This gives you the key to understand the death of Jesus. So here's what I mean. I'll roll through several truths about the Passover lamb, and I'll show you their fulfillment in Christ. Back in Exodus 11, you get all this in Exodus 11. Exodus 11, we're told that the Passover lamb had to be a one-year-old male. Okay, And Jesus, this is symbolic of Jesus being cut down and murdered in the prime of His life. He wasn't a seasoned old man. He was about 30 years old, about my age on this planet. Cut down in His prime and nailed to the cross. That's the symbol He's the true Passover lamb. Jesus is the true Passover lamb slaughtered in Jerusalem. Out of everywhere on the planet that this could have happened, the Christ of God was crucified in Jerusalem as commanded in the Word of God. Jesus is the true Passover lamb selected exactly four days before His slaughter. And this is symbolic. That was a law in Exodus 20. This is symbolic that Jesus rides His donkey into Jerusalem and appears four days exactly before they crucify Him on the cross. He's the true Passover Lamb without blemish. He is the only one that has moral perfection. He is the only perfect substitute for sinful humanity. He lived a sinless life. He is the Lamb without blemish. He's the only Lamb without blemish. Jesus is the true Passover lamb that endured the agony of the cross, yet not one of his bones was broken, and the fire of God's wrath completely consumed him, just like the Passover. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. The Passover blood had to be smeared on the doorpost of the house, and the blood of the true Passover lamb was smeared all over his cross. This is the shadow The blood of the Passover lambs could not atone for sin. They were only shadows. There was no remission of sin in the shedding of the blood of animals. But the blood of the true Passover lamb cancels sin forever. There's power in the blood of Christ. The Egyptian Passover freed from Pharaoh, earthly slavery, but the true Passover lamb frees us from slavery to sin and Satan. And then Jesus leads us in the exodus out of death. Just like Ryan talked about earlier. He leads us out of the grave into eternal life. This is the greater exodus and the true Passover. This is His body. This is His blood. And Jesus is the Passover lamb that has been sacrificed. And I just ask you today, does anybody have any better news than the glorious gospel of Jesus today? This is it. This is the highest. This is the greatest news in human history that Christ, our Passover lamb, died instead of us. The message of Passover. A five-year-old can understand that. The lamb died instead of us. And it's deep enough to feed our souls for thousands and ten millions of years into eternity. We'll never get over the glory in this message. The lamb died instead of us. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus' blood is poured out. Poured out. Listen to how vivid that is. Jesus was not scratched for you. He didn't drop a few drops of blood for you. Jesus' blood was poured out for sinners. Jesus was butchered. He was slaughtered. He became a bloody payment for sin. There was nothing pretty about this. He was mangled. He was filleted. He was consumed by the wrath of God. 
He was the blood sacrifice for our sin. And this bloody death, that, that nasty bloody death, becomes the most important event in history. No comparison. Think about this. The high celebration for us as Christians, we celebrate the slaughtering of the Son of God. The moment where God cut down the Son instead of us. And we celebrate that as good news because the Lamb died instead of us. This is the glorious Gospel of the grace of God. This is the point of the Passover. This is the meaning of the cross. Substitutionary atonement. The Lamb died instead of us. In verse 24, this blood inaugurates what's called the new covenant. And what that tells for us as the what that tells us as the people of God is that when Jesus laid down his life, when he suffered this bloody death for our sins, he unleashes promises to us. Glorious promises. All these promises are gathered together in a basket. And this basket is handed to us called a new covenant. Thousands of spiritual blessings in this basket. This is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Listen to Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 32, verse 40 and 41. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Listen to this. That I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. That just makes me want to freshly praise God for these glor- this glorious grace that we have been given in Jesus. His blood inaugurates the covenant and it's ours forever. It's ours forever. The main point of this passage, of what we're looking at today in the Word of God, is that Jesus Christ is the Passover Lamb. That's the main point. The main aim of why that passage is in the Bible is that each of us individually would receive personally Jesus as our Passover Lamb. That's why it's here. So I want to draw your attention. As we begin to close, I want to draw your attention into these two symbols that Jesus gives us. The, bl- the bread and the wine. The bread and the wine. And they symbolize the body and the blood of Christ. And what I want to point out is that in the wisdom of God, these have to be consumed. Okay, These symbols that Jesus throws down on the table, they do you no good to know what they are. Oh yeah, that's the blood of Christ. Oh yeah, that's the body of Christ. Oh yeah, I heard a sermon about that one time. These symbols only do you good if you consume them. Okay, This is a picture of receiving Jesus by faith. You must consume Jesus by faith. You must receive Christ by faith. I want you to think back to the Passover story. Having a lamb didn't do you any good unless you slaughtered it, threw the blood on the door, and then ate it. The only ones who were safe And that judgment were the ones who had the lamb, the ones who consumed the lamb. This is a picture that you have to believe in the Lord Jesus. It is not enough for you to know facts about Christ. It is not enough for you to know a lot of facts about Christ. If you do not trust Jesus, you are not saved. It will do you no good. You must receive Christ by faith. You have to eat Him like a meal. Nobody can eat for you. Nobody can eat for you. We are in agreement there? In the same way, nobody can believe the gospel for you. You have to believe it personally or you'll never be saved. But everyone who received this lamb is passed over in judgment. That's the picture. The Passover judgment in Egypt, this is just a little glimpse of the final judgment, the day of wrath, the day of the Lord that's coming on all humanity. Jesus told us that on that day that they will cry out for rocks to fall. Human beings will cry out for rocks to fall on them. And they will seek death but not find it. And they will ask to be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. And on that day, the only ones who will be safe are the ones that have sought shelter 
in the blood of Christ, under the blood of the substitute, the only ones. If you do not repent and believe in Jesus before God requires your life of you, the Word of God is very clear that you will go and suffer for your sins eternally, forever in hell. But the good news of the Gospel, the entire reason for the whole New Testament is that God gives us a Lamb. That the Lamb died instead of us. We don't have to die. We don't have to suffer punishment for our sins. The God of all grace has done a work. A matchless work. A mighty work in Jesus. You will either die for your sins or the Lamb will die for you. This is the righteousness of God. There will be a bloody payment for your sins. So let the gospel of Jesus be clear in this place. The gospel of Jesus, the lamb died instead of us. Five-year-olds can understand this. That means that all of our hope for eternal life, for a righteous judgment from God, is in the atoning blood of the lamb that died instead of us. This is the gospel. And then listen to this. Jesus holds these symbols out and He says, Take, take it, eat it. Take it and eat it. Isn't that an awesome invitation? That we don't have to talk Him into something. He's the one that pursues sinners. He's the one that extends salvation. And with the words, when He says, take it and eat it, this is highlighting that salvation is a gracious gift from God. Jesus did not say pay for it. He did not say earn it. He said, take it. It's yours. My body. Eat it. Consume it. Believe it. Believe the Gospel. This is a picture of the free grace of God. And a reminder that no one will ever be saved by good works. Because you can't do them. No one will ever be saved by works. Isaiah 55, verses 1-3. through This is a beautiful picture of the free grace, the free offer of the Gospel to all who would believe. Isaiah 55, verses 1-3. through Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. This is the free offer of the gospel. Free offer the gospel. The ones who have no money are invited to come buy and eat. This is the free offer of the gospel. And I want to say a quick word to anyone here today as we finish up. I want to say a quick word to anyone here today that struggles with assurance of whether you're saved or whether you're not. And I want to give you a reminder of this Passover story. Something that could be helpful to you from the Word of God. The secret to assurance is the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. The secret to assurance is the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. I want you to go back to the Passover story. And I want you to remember that verse that we read, that there was not a house in Egypt where someone was not dead. And we know from that story that screams began to fill the land of Egypt as people watched their family members die. God struck them down right in front of their eyes. And screams began to fill the land. I just want to ask you a question. Do you think that some of God's people, as they heard the terrors, hopeless screams of those who were cut down in the judgment of God, do you think some of God's people started to feel anxious, started to feel fearful, I don't think that's a stretch at all. You hear people screaming all around you by the hundreds, then by the thousands. Somebody there that night was wondering, I wonder if he's coming in this house. I want you to try to picture maybe a 19-year-old firstborn. okay? And they're sitting down. These are Israelites. And they're sitting down and the blood's on the door and they're eating that lamb and they're almost done with it. And they start to hear the screams piercing out in Egypt. And that 19-year-old starts to say, I'm a little bit nervous they're coming and they're, they're falling all around. Death is falling all around me. And he tells his dad, I wonder if they're coming here. I'm scared they're coming. He's coming in here, dad. And I want you to try to picture a father full of faith in the promise of God leaning in 
and encouraging his son not to listen to the screens of Egypt. He, and, and just saying, the blood is on the door. The word of God is true. Eat this lamb because tonight we're leaving Egypt. Nobody's dying in this house because God keeps his word. The word of his promise. And I want you to notice in that story, there are no special details in that story of how to paint the door on the blood. You don't stand on your left leg or maybe I stand on my right leg. Maybe I'll hang my tongue out and get it real neat on the blood. And that's what we do. That's what we do when we focus on our faith. I need to believe better. There's something that I'm not doing right. And all of that story sends you to the Lamb. This is the assurance, the object of your faith. This is the key to assurance of salvation. There are no instructions in that story that you have to chew the bite of the lamb. You have to chew it 50 times before you swallow it. You have to close one eye when you swallow the bite of the lamb. And that's what it looks like when we sit around and we wonder about believing better and believing stronger. And I just need to believe something more rightly. And you're looking at yourself instead of the lamb. The object of faith is the secret to assurance. The lamb died instead of us. I want to read verses 25 and 26, and I want to close really fast. Verses 25 and 26. They drank the third cup of wine right after they ate that meal, and then they sang Psalm 115 and 116. And then they would have shared the fourth cup of wine, but we read this instead. Verses 25 and 26. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus refuses to share, to drink the fourth cup of wine. That was the cup of consummation. And what that means is Jesus is telling us that salvation that He's about to accomplish on His cross, it won't be fully consummated until the kingdom of God comes in fullness. And here's what that means for you. Here's what that means for you, for the people of God in this room, that there will be a great, glorious, never-ending day of communion with Jesus in the kingdom of God. You'll sit down at the table and you'll eat with Christ. Revelation 19 calls this the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Isaiah the prophet also spoke of this day. 25, verse 6-9, through On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the faces, and that, the veil that is spread over all nations. And He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Every believer, never-ending fellowship with Jesus is coming your way when this cup of consummation is going to be shared in by us in Christ. Verse 26 tells us that they finished the night by singing a hymn. And when Jesus refused that final cup, the next story in the Gospel accounts is the story of Gethsemane. And before Jesus drinks the cup of consummation in the kingdom of God, He's about to slam the cup of God's wrath for you. And then they leave that night in verse 26 and they sing a hymn. And we know from history that this was the last of the Hallel Psalms, which would have been Psalm 118. And I want to read a couple of verses from Psalm 118. These words would have been on the lips of Jesus as He left the upper room that night. This is glorious. This is glorious. Psalm 118, verses 21 and 24. Psalm 118, verses 21 through 24. I thank You that You have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In your culture, that's a coffee cup verse. That's a verse that people slam on a coffee cup. 
And they say, I should be happy today because I'm a Christian. And that's certainly true. But that verse doesn't mean anything close to that. That verse just said that there's a day among all days that's marvelous. It's the day that the builders rejected a stone that became the cornerstone. It's the day that Christ was slaughtered for our sins. And then that word, that verse says, in this day, above all days, we rejoice and we're glad in this day. And Jesus is singing that as He's leaving. Verses 27 through 28. This is on the lips of Christ. The Lord is God and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. So this is the resolve of Jesus. That He's just hours away from His cross. And the last thing coming out of His mouth, He says, bind the sacrifice to the altar. Singing that to God. Who's the sacrifice? Jesus is. He is ready to accomplish the will of the Father. And He's singing to God, Lord, bind me to the, to the altar. Put me on the cross. I'm ready to finish the work that I've come out to accomplish. And you see the resolve of Jesus here. Revelation chapter 5 tells us that Jesus is going to be worshipped forever as the Lamb for what He did in this 24-hour day. There will, be, there will never be a day throughout eternity where we don't launch out in praise to Jesus Christ that the Lamb died instead of us. This is the story of the Gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your grace toward us, Your matchless grace, Lord. And we just ask for Your help, Holy Spirit, that You would help us to glory in Christ crucified more and more, Lord. Help us to take fresh joy. Help us to take fresh joy in You, Jesus. Help us to give You matchless worship, matchless praise for what You've done. And Jesus, we just thank You today for dying for our sins. We thank You today for Your grace and Your great love, Your grace and Your mercy toward us. Be praised, Christ, for Your sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.